Hi, Scott Hamilton, Rockfile, back with another podcast. This one is a discussion of the album Signals from the band Rush. Probably mentioned it once or twice in another podcast. Rush is one of my favorite bands. Got into them early, and it was the musicianship. Being a trumpet player, I tried to play guitar, wasn't very good, and in, in sixth grade, I became a trumpet player. And the more I learned about music and how it was played, that didn't just translate to classical and jazz and the things I was doing, but also the rock and roll that I loved. Rock had always been just... I liked pop music, I liked songs on the radio, or I recorded Casey Kasem, all that kind of stuff when I was young, but I always gravitated towards rock, and to this day, I can just tell you, it excites me. I like it when a group of people get on stage and crank the the volume up to 11 and, and give it all they got. I just really... There's something about that. If it's too slick, if it's not, you know, if it's not real, if it's not authentic, I just tune out. And that's not to say that pop, R&B, country, any of the other genres are not good. I have enjoyed music and performances from all genres. I like all music, but rock and roll is my thing. It just always has been. So I was heavily into Rush already Uh, when Signals came out. Signals was released today, September 9th in 1982. That's why I'm recording the podcast. Um, They released Hold Your Fire yesterday, and I just, I wasn't driven to do a podcast about Hold Your Fire. It's a decent album. Uh, It came out while I was in college. It's still one I like to pull out and listen to. Songs like The Mission really stand up. Um, But that album did not a light bulb didn't go off and say, do a podcast about that album. But Signals did. I have a few stories or a story behind Signals and why, to me, I was horribly, horribly disappointed when Signals came out. So like I said, I had already been into Rush. Um, 96 Rock in Atlanta was an early adopter of all sorts of music like Rush and Triumph and Queensryche and Iron Maiden, even some of that stuff they played late at night. For us in middle school and high school, you know, we we just devoured it. This was before MTV. This was before the internet. Uh, it was pretty much the only place you got to hear new music for free. Listen to your local radio station, right? That's why I'm still doing radio. People still find music that way. So... I had been into, once the band got popular after 2112, um, the songs that 96 Rock played off of Farewell to Kings and Permanent Waves, I was just super into the band. And when I got into high school, I was befriended by some of the older guys who were already listening to music that I would later become my favorite music of all time, whether it be Rush, ACDC, Ozzy, Black Sabbath, that kind of stuff. Um, I was an only child, so I didn't have an older brother or sister to impart these things upon me. It was all me just trying to figure it all out, what I liked, that kind of thing. So my first Rush tour was Moving Pictures in 1981. It, it, I saw that in the Omni in Atlanta. It's exactly like the videos you've seen on MTV. Um, they had incorporated movies and and some interesting lighting, and it, Rush was really taking off. Moving Pictures just really was one of those albums. It, it, to this day, Tom Sawyer plays, and millions of people do air drums and air guitar. It it was just one of those albums. It everything that led up to Rush at that point just kind of moving pictures was it. That was the pinnacle. For all of us, when that came out, it was like, wow, because we had just come off the wall and albums like that. Um, Ozzy was getting ready to release his first solo albums. You know, it was a a huge time for great albums and great music. And you have no idea the impact that moving pictures had on people that were already Rush fans. It was like, wow, this is even better than Permanent Waves. And that was hard to say. And, And to this day, I hold this in Permanent Waves as like, 
the creative peak and commercial peak of the band where those two things came together. So fast forward another year, I've seen the tour. I, I have all of the Rush albums going back on cassette or vinyl at the time. Um, and I'm a huge, huge fan. And Subdivisions comes out. That's the first thing we hear off Signals. And I wanted to love it. <laughs> I really did. It opens with massive keyboards. Now, Getty had been fooling around with keyboards and bass pedals for a few years already, but they had not drenched any songs in it or removed guitar parts to fill them with keyboards. I know they were evolving. I know they were expanding. Before I get too far into my critique of the album, know that this album went to number one <laughs> in, in uh, Canada, number three in the UK, and number 10 in the US. It was, it was certified platinum very quickly. They had five singles off the album. It's been released, remastered three or four times, surround sound mixes and all that. So it's definitely a popular album in Rush culture. Um, at the time, Rolling Stone gave it a pretty bad review. They were like uh, emphasizing synthesizers at the expense of Alex Lyson's guitar, mostly a wasted effort, two out of five stars. But Louder called Signals the 29th best album of the 80s overall. Uh, there's a lot of bands that have talked about it being influential. Trent Reznor talks about the keyboards on it made him want to put keyboards in their music. Um, so when I got the album... I got a cassette. You got to know that this was the rage at the time. People were moving away from albums because you couldn't play them in the car. And cassette had come out. You could tape the album. So if you had the vinyl, tape the album. But it was just easier to buy the cassette sometimes. Like today, it's just easier to buy the download than to go find the CD or the vinyl. And so I don't know why, because I didn't have to dub it. I was given to, on cassette. And that was probably the reason of the biggest disappointment. That was one of the worst-sounding cassettes ever released by a major record label. It sounded like this. Truly sound when you put it, no matter what. I put it in a home stereo. For Christmas, I got one of those giant sound design silver massive Mondo things, which was really a cheap stereo and a big package. Um, but it had all the Dolby noise reduction and a big EQ on it, and I spent hours trying to fix that cassette. I never did get the vinyl. I did get the vinyl in college, but didn't. Listen. I was starting to get out of vinyl as CD came out, so I never really listened to the vinyl that much. So cassette was my first impression of this and what I heard on the radio, and it sounded muffled. It sounded terrible. It just. It really. There was no high end. You can tell that Neil was playing cymbals, but they weren't coming through. The whole thing was washed and like no high end at all, like heavy Dolby uh, noise reduction. If you remember what that used to sound like, you'd have this hiss on a cassette, and then you hit the Dolby and it goes, and it'd be really soft, and the music would usually cover it up. But you would also roll off some of the high end <laughs> when you did that. Um, and Dolby C was better than Dolby B, and I won't get into why cassettes were finally replaced. They finally got to a point with gold cassettes and some metal biases and things that cassettes started sounding pretty good towards the end, right before they went into digital cassettes, and that's a whole nother podcast there. But anyway, so my first audio impression of other than hearing subdivision on the radio was putting signals into a home stereo and a car stereo and think it just sounded terrible. It didn't have the pop, the fire that the last couple, I mean, moving pictures is a very live mix. You're, the band is just on it. And this was more of a subdued, slick 80s. I, 
really, my first impressions were things that I don't, at the time anyway, didn't normally think about, like the engineering. I really hated the sound of the album. And these days, unless a song is really strident, like they've pushed the levels too far and it's crunchy at the top, I don't care how songs are recorded. I, I want to. I can hear through that to hear the song because most songs, you know, other than being overly compressed or overly auto-tuned, most songs are still songs. But this, I just, I, I couldn't look past the, the, the audio quality to get to the lyrics and the musicianship. And like I said, everything sounded muffled. Some of these songs became some of my favorite concert tracks from the band. Analog Kid, Digital Man, Subdivisions, New World Man. These are all great songs live. So going back to it now, the, the music stands up. It was the recording of the album that makes me call this a disappointment. Now, the album was re-released in 1994 in a Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab Gold Master. If you've ever had a chance to listen to one of these, they sound incredible. I would say they sound better than vinyl. This company, Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab, took the original masters from the labels and did their own transfers to disc or to digital masters or whatever. And they're just sublime. They're not really loud. Matter of fact, they used to be kind of quiet because they wouldn't put any effects on them. They, it was a straight, you know, mastering of the original audio tapes. So when they released this, there was much controversy about it. The sound was improved, but like the song The Weapon has a line of lyrics missing about three minutes into the song. The Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab said it came that way from the label. Also, the New World Man ending is several seconds longer. So fans have rushed to get this album. <laughs> Sony. And um, it's quite expensive and popular these days. So you get these sector box sets, and uh, the remastering was better on that. And then they were remastered again in 2015 uh, for LP and digital format. So yes, yeah, so listening to the remasters in the years you know, after... That has removed my complaints about the sound quality, but still, the sound quality of the the whole album was recorded in a more reserved fashion than their previous works, and I, I understand. And because the album sold well, they kind of continued that trend into the next album, <laughs> which is one of my least favorite albums for the same reasons, but I do like some of the songs on it. So maybe when that gets released, I'll do another podcast. But for Signals, going back to it now, I love the lyrics. Neil did some great stuff. The music is great. Um, Countdown. If you haven't listened to the album in a while, that's a powerful song about uh, a launch at NASA. And then NASA loves that song and has used it as a soundtrack for the launches and things. It's a major thing. But... Neil had some great things to say in the lyrics. The music is very good. The playing is very good. It's just, it's different than what Rush fans wanted. And like I said, it was successful. So people embraced it. And I know people who were not as big into them before, who were right at that age where they were getting into Rush, that this is their moving pictures or this is their uh, permanent waves. And I get that, or their 2112 or whatever. But it's not for me because I was already a huge fan. And this album came out and was like, oh, I hoped it wasn't a signal of a turn for the worse. But looking back over Rush's career, it's one of the things I love about the 40 years these three friends were together, is that each milestone in their career is end-capped by a live album. It's like they did this, these albums, these four albums, and then they would do a live album. And that kind of closed the chapter on that section of Rush. Then they would do, you know, four more albums and then they would do a live album and then they would and they continued that trend 
So if you go from a live album back, you kind of see that this is Rush Era 1, this is Rush Era 2, or Sector, as they called it, as they divided up their career into those sections as well, kind of. But anyway, that's... I've talked about it in other podcasts. Bands have to evolve. And Rush is one of those bands that did evolve. When an artist evolves, not everybody is along for the ride. Somebody wants them to stay the same as they were. But obviously, if you're making music or art or whatever, you don't want to make the same thing over and over. You want to keep making more and, and you want to do things. and You want to push yourself and whatever. But like I said, my teenage self just didn't feel the band was pushing themselves on this album. But now I go back and listen to it with my adult radio ears. I'm like, they were. Because I've, you know, Getty Lee interviews, he's talked about how hard it is to write the pop song. The, and by pop, I mean popular. The three to four minute song that gets stuck in your head that you tap your foot to and you turn up the radio when it comes on. He says that is one of the hardest things to write. Writing the 12 minute prog rock epic where you throw everything in the kitchen sink into a song is actually fairly easy for him. But writing something that stands the test of time, writing something that that gets into the popular culture, that gets into your vernacular, your musical vernacular, you know, that gets into your mind that doesn't go away, those are the hard songs to write. And if you go back and listen to Signals, there's some great melodies, there's some great themes, and there's some great lyrics. Subdivisions, analog, kid, chemistry, digital, man, side one is just tight. The Weapon, Part 2 of Fear. Don't even, I mean, if you're a new Rush fan, you have such a rabbit hole to go down to because they will name songs like The Weapon, Part 2 of Fear, and you have to go through different albums to find out what are the other parts of fear. Or at this time, they were saying things like, this album was brought to you by the letter, boop, and what did all that mean? You know, (laughs) there were so many inside jokes and stuff, and we take that kind of stuff for granted in Marvel movies and things like that now, but Rush was leading the way on dropping little hints about things and, and doing personal things inside their albums, even at this time back in 1982. So Signals, huge disappointment for me in my life as a Rush fan that when it came out, the, my first listens to it were just, oh my God, <laughs> oh and then I would go put moving pictures or Farewell to Kings or I'd go listen to Xanad. You know, I'd go listen to La Villa Sraggiato or something. But now looking back, the band were on a path. And as you track the albums and what came after this, Grace Under Pressure and Hold Your Fire and such, the band continued to evolve, continued to grow, and I can't fault them for that. And like I said, these songs now in retrospect are some of my favorite songs. I mean, I lost classic like Losing It. Pull out Signals when you get a chance and go listen to it. It's on your streaming service. Uh, It's probably in your library. It's one of those albums most people own, but we tend to listen to other albums more often. Signals is worth a listen, especially if you have one of the remastered versions. I still have um, the original CD when it came out, which sounds pretty close to the muffled sound I got originally, and I want to keep that thing (laughs) to remember how that sound really changed my opinion because it wasn't at the time I wasn't a a critic of such things as it was too compressed or it was too soft or it was too this or you know I was just here's one of my favorite bands that was bombastic and loud and this album wasn't but the concert tour turned me around where they went after this turned me around so signals sorry I, I didn't like you in the beginning but you are one of the best Rush albums and everybody should Give it a listen again to the remastered versions. I'm Scott Hamilton. I'm Rockfile. A little trip down memory lane about Signals, which came out today on September the 9th in 1982. I hope you enjoyed it. My links to all my other projects are below. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>